All right, let's, uh, let's pray together before we start tonight. Father, I ask that as we take this time to look into your word, that you would make us to be people who respond to what we see here with uh, belief and with hope and with encouragement and with resolve to cling to the one who uh, promises that the difficulties that we face in this life can be and uh, can only be overcome by the one who has uh, taken on death for us. So I pray that as we think about these things tonight, that you would draw us to yourself and that you would make yourself known to us in such a way that we will uh, be able to more accurately and faithfully display you to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me tonight to Revelation chapter 12. So the very last book of the Bible and uh, chapter 12 in Revelation. <clears throat> and we have spent this semester, the times that we have been together, talking about this uh, theme of great expectations. And we are now, uh, after a few months, at the time of year when it seems like everybody's expectations are heightened. In fact, expectations this time of year uh, for a lot of people seem like they're maybe higher than uh, at any other time of the year. And why is that? What is it this year that people are, or what is it this time of year, what is it that raises their expectations? The beginning of college basketball season. Obviously, all the teams are like thinking this is their year. That's what I, that's what I had. Is that what you guys had in mind too? I actually You were thinking that too? Good. So a few of us. Awesome. So I wasn't way out on a limb. Uh, good. I'm actually expecting that eventually Tennessee will get to play some college basketball games. Uh, hopefully. But uh, maybe for a few more people, it's more than just college basketball. It would be what? You can say the obvious thing. Christmas, okay? The end of the year, uh, may, yeah, maybe you're anticipating, maybe you're expecting either a certain kind of gift, uh, so you're excited about whatever is on your list this year, maybe you're expecting or hoping uh, that in your time off of school that you're going to take some trip, maybe you're planning to go out of town and you're just praying that you can actually pull that off amidst everything else this year. Or, uh, you know, any number of other things that might be raising your uh, expectations. And uh, the, the book of Revelation is one of those books that especially, I would hope, for Christians uh, helps us. It doesn't just raise our expectations, but it actually gives something measurable to our expectations. So we're going to try to ask and answer the question tonight... Uh, what can we expect from God in the future? And in some ways, that's what the book of Revelation sets out to answer. Maybe uh, many of us sometimes, I think, probably think of the book of Revelation uh, as, as though it were a way to kind of chart out 
a timeline exactly of exactly what will happen in the future. You know, like this event and then this event and, and you know, that's how it's all going to play out. But that's not really how Revelation was written. It wasn't intended just for us to kind of be able to map out, you know, this event and then that event, although I think sometimes you can, you can make sense of that. But really, John, the apostle of Jesus, who wrote this book, I think he wrote Revelation. Of course, he wrote it based on visions that he received. And where did John receive his visions from? Who gave him his visions? From Jesus himself. If you, if you read Revelation chapter 1, you see that. And so Jesus is giving John these visions, and John wrote these visions down, and he was writing specifically to churches, so two bodies of believers, who at that time were enduring pretty severe persecution and opposition. And so he wrote them so that they could know how things would turn out in the end. They could have a hope that things are going to not always stay the way that they were at that time. And so it was to give them the, that kind of, of expectation. So my hope, by looking at Revelation 12 tonight, is that we will also be encouraged by certain promises that we see there. So uh, hopefully you have a page for notes and you've got a pen. And so I'm going to give some things for you to write down. Mainly, I'm going to give three promises... Three things that we can expect to take place in the future. We can expect for God to do in the future, okay? So, uh, so write these down, and then we'll try to make sense of them from Revelation chapter 12. Here's the first one. What can we expect from God in the future? Number one, God's king will rule all the nations. Number one, God's king will Rule all the nations. So let me read, and you, can, you should read with me, Revelation 12, and I'm going to read 1 through 6. John says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so you can already tell that some of these, some of these visions that John saw... Uh, are we would we could we would probably say he saw some pretty crazy stuff, okay? So we're going to try to make sense of what exactly it is that he sees here, and we're going to try to make sense of what does it have to do with the first Christmas, 
And how does the things that happen in that first Christmas point us to what's going to happen in the future? So let's try to figure out even who some of these things and people are that he sees. What's the first thing that John saw in heaven? Verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven and he saw what? Or who? You can say it out loud. A woman. He saw a woman. And, and this woman, apparently, he describes her as clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. It's an interesting fashion choice right there, okay? So, who is the woman? All right, let's try to, make, let's try to give some options for who this woman could be. Who do we think the woman might be? You say, Mary? Okay, a lot of people think that Mary's being described here. Why? That's right. This woman is going to give birth to a son, to a male child, who will rule all the nations. And so uh, only one son can actually fit that description, and it is Mary's son. So Mary is a possibility. Uh, some say that, that this woman is actually representative not just of Mary, but of the whole nation of Israel. And so that wording, uh, with wearing the uh, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So maybe those 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so maybe you even remember, uh, remember back in Genesis, Joseph had a dream where he saw the sun and moon and 11 other stars bowing to him, and the other stars were his brothers. Okay, so Joseph being a son of Jacob. Okay, so maybe this is representative of the whole nation of Israel, or maybe it's representative of all of God's people from all time. And he's just using that imagery of you know, that, that, that his readers would recognize, okay? So in some form or fashion, uh, this woman represents God's people, we can say, okay? Uh, specifically, you know, Mary, I think, does come into play here as we see, all right? So he sees this woman. Uh, she's pregnant. She's about to give birth, okay? The second thing that John sees in verse 3 is what? Another great sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a what? A dragon, a great red dragon, and uh, you can kind of understand a little bit about this dragon from some of the descriptions given there. He has, we're told, seven heads, ten horns. On his heads, seven diadems, so each head has a crown. So that is at least what we can understand from there, is that this dragon is powerful. This dragon uh, has some authority. He has some power. Uh, he's, he's described in verse 4, as, as, it, as it says there, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Some people think that that's a way to describe uh, the way that this dragon deceived some of the angels. Sometimes in the Bible, angels are called stars. And so if he swept away a third of them, some think that this means that the dragon deceived a third of the angels and forced them, or, or at least uh, persuaded them, to follow him, uh, so, he's, so he's deceptive in that way. And then at the end of verse 4, we read that this dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, and what did he want to do with the woman and with her child? To kill the child, right? It says he wants to devour the child uh, when he is born. Uh, so we would understand that this dragon is not only powerful and deceptive, he's also violent He's opposing the woman, and he's, he's especially opposing this woman's uh, child. Can you think of other examples in the Bible where uh, 
people attempted to destroy children? Name some. Name one or two. Very good. That's one. So at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh uh, says, hey, these Israelites are too many. We're going to make sure that when they give birth, we throw these babies into the river, okay? Yeah, every male child. That's right. Okay, that's one example. There's at least one or two more. Okay, so King Herod in the New Testament... Uh, puts out the, you know, finds out that there's one who's going to be born who's king of the Jews, and he says, well, we can't let that happen, and so he doesn't know where to find the king of the Jews, and so he goes out and he has all of the male children two years and under slaughtered. All right, so you see, you see that attempt as well. Uh, you also see, um, uh, not so much with children, but remember the book of Esther and Haman is attempting to uh, put out a decree so that all, is, all the Israelites would be killed on a certain day. Remember that? So there's all these attempts, even in the Old Testament, uh, where it seems like the line of Israel is going to be destroyed one way or another. And that apparently is the goal of this dragon here. He wants to put an end to this woman's line, to her offspring, so that it can't uh, reign and rule. And yet... In verse 5, what do we read? This child is born, right? He survives. And it says that he, uh, she gives birth to him. He is one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That seem, might seem like an odd description to our ears. But actually, John there is uh, quoting from the book of Psalms. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 9 uh, says, Of God and of his anointed... Uh, the psalmist says to, to God, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, describing God's uh, ultimate rule. So this, that's who's born. It says also in, there in verse 5 that the child was caught up to God and to his throne. So if you, didn't, if you didn't know any better, if you're just reading it straight through, this child is born, and then what's the next thing we know about him? Caught up to God and to his throne. So, so it, it reads almost like as soon as he was born, he's caught up. Or like that's just the only significant things that happen in his life, right? Is that true of this child, though? It's not. And we'll see more um, here, in, here in a little bit. So that's the significance of the woman and the dragon and the child. God's king will rule all the nations. If you, want to, if you want to think about, okay, that's all really helpful information, hopefully, but like, you know, what, what about application? Okay, let's think about this. Um, the end of the book of Matthew, all of us are given a commission, right? Go and make disciples of what? All the nations, right? And so I think that Jesus' command there is uh, purposeful because if if God's king is going to rule over all the nations, then that means that some from all the nations must be his subjects. And the way that subjects are brought into his kingdom from all the nations is when God's people go into all the nations and make disciples of those representatives. So 
we need to ask ourselves, how are we helping to make sure that all the nations will be under the rule of God's king? Okay, that's number one. Number two, God's authority, God's authority will bring victory and salvation. God's authority will bring victory and salvation. I'm getting that from the next set of verses, verses 7 through 12. So, picking it up in verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down. Here's where you get a further description of the dragon, by the way. Look at what... Look at how this dragon is described in verse 9. The dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And John says in verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's a lot going on there. God's authority, though, is bringing about victory and salvation. Let's go back to the top again and and try to make sense of of exactly what's going on here. Uh, We see that in this war, Michael... All right, so who's Michael? Well, we, we would have... If you read just straight through the New Testament, you would have just read the book of Jude, and in Jude, Michael is described as an archangel... And so he is leading now other angels in battle against the dragon and these other angels. Okay, so if if this sounds like something out of a fantasy film or a comic book, uh, you know where they get their ideas, right? This is a cosmic fight between angelic creatures. It's interesting, too, uh, who, who who were the first creatures to announce the birth of Jesus? Who, who appeared to the shepherds? It was the angels, right? So angels there are there again at Christmas to announce the birth of this child. And now they are here to help assure the victory of this child who has become king. So angels play a significant role here. And you'll notice what is said about this dragon once he is defeated. Because that's what happens in this fight. The dragon the angels fought back, but he was defeated. And it says in verse 8 that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And so once he's cast out of heaven, where does he go? Where is he sent to? To the earth. That's right. And, uh, and, and so you might um, understand that, or you might remember that in the book of Job, you have the story of Satan who is accusing Job before God. Remember, Satan appears before God and it says he's accusing Job because uh, 
Satan, just like all the other angels, had to give an account to God, had to appear in the presence of God. Well, apparently, there's going to come a time where Satan is no longer allowed in God's presence to accuse God's people. Because isn't that what Satan's called there in verse 10? He's called the accuser of our brothers, and he has been thrown down. There's no longer any place in heaven for him or for his angels. And then you have this announcement in verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying that salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And, uh, and that these brothers, in verse 11, these brothers who had been accused by the dragon day and night, they have conquered him. Those who have been accused now have conquered the dragon. And how have they conquered him? What's the phrasing there in verse 11? They have conquered him how? Can you read it? By the blood of the Lamb. And so you have in verses 10 and 11 a description or at least an expansion, uh, an explanation of what the child accomplished between the time that he was born and the time that he was caught up to God's throne. What is apparently one thing that he did? Apparently, he shed his blood. The blood of the Lamb is described there. It's the blood of the Lamb that allows, first of all, it allows the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ to come. And apparently, it allows those who have been accused, the brothers who have been accused by Satan, it allows them to conquer the dragon. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the child who was spared from Herod's sword on the day of his birth eventually did willingly go to a Roman cross where he was executed and crucified and where his blood was spilt as a way for his salvation and power to come and to allow his people to conquer. So just like in Exodus, the blood of a lamb would spare the Israelites in Egypt, this time the blood of the lamb spares God's people from God's judgment. Just like, and, and we, just like the Israelites, are strangers in a foreign land. And this lamb, God's son, we know conquered death and the grave, which is why those who had been accused by the serpent now can conquer the serpent by the blood of the lamb. So in the lamb's, in the shedding of the lamb's blood, was he defeated? No, he actually was the conqueror in that instance. God's authority bringing victory over his enemy and salvation for his people. That's the second promise there. Here's the third uh, promise, third promise. God's people will be preserved from the enemy. God's people will be preserved from the enemy. So uh, where we left off in verse 6, what had happened to the woman? The woman gave birth, but then she, what? In verse 6, we're told she fled where? 
into the wilderness, and she's there for a number of days, but as she's there, she's nourished, it says. She's there at a place prepared by God. So, let's read, uh, starting in verse 13. When the dragon had, uh, saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So, so let's stop there, and, and you can almost see why he would do this. Uh, did the dragon have success defeating the child? No. So he, now that he can't defeat the child, who's he going to go after? The woman, who is, who's now in the wilderness, we're told. All right, so what happens? Verse 14, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. One of one of okay, one of the things that uh the Old Testament prophets would do um in order to cause their readers, cause their hearers to have hope in the future even when things in the present didn't look very good, one thing they would always do is point to the way that God had rescued His people in the past and be able to say to them, this is how God preserved His people in the past, and so you can count on God doing the same thing or doing the same kinds of things for you in the future. So they would look at God's past actions, His past faithfulness, and they would say, you can count, count on God doing this for you as well. And that, of course, would be encouraging for them. And John is doing the same thing here for his readers who are being opposed. And basically he's saying, look at how God preserved and rescued his people in the past and trust that he's going to do the same thing for you. And... and I want to kind of describe, I want to kind of summarize this, and you tell me if this sounds like another event in the Bible, okay, in the Old Testament. All right, you have uh, several things going on here. Uh, first, you have the enemy pursuing God's people. So God's people are on the move, and they're being pursued by the enemy. Um, the, the way that the people escape from the enemy, we are told, it is like they are given two wings of a great eagle, so they escape from the enemy on eagle's wings, is the description uh, there. Once they escape, they go into the wilderness. Even though the enemy tries to pour out water like a river and flood the people away, the, the, it's like the earth preserves God's people through the water. And then the people have to be preserved even after that because there's war. Verse 17 says they went off, uh, he went off to make war on the rest of uh, the woman's offspring. So 
enemy pursuing God's people, they're delivered on eagle's wings, they're nourished in the wilderness, they're preserved through water, and they're kept even in times of war. Does that sound like anything happened that may have happened in the Old Testament? Exactly. When Israel was... Uh, when the exodus happened for Israel out of Egypt, okay? So here's what John seems to be doing. He seems to be talking to the church there and saying, just like God was faithful to preserve his people from the same kinds of opposition in the past, he's going to do it for you in the future. And that's why a lot of uh, people will call uh, our future salvation, they'll say it's like a new exodus, a new deliverance. Um, a, new, a new return from exile, they would say, okay? Because that is exactly the kind of thing that God is promising to do for his people. Now, again, you have to take it in context because there's still, you know, at this point, uh, 10 more chapters of Revelation, and so you read about what that conflict is like for God's people. Is it easy? Obviously not. It's conflict. It's war. It's violent. We're opposed. It seems a lot of times like God's people do not win in the end. And yet, John is saying, look, it's going to feel like you're in the wilderness. It's going to feel like you're on the run. It's going to feel like the world is, a, is against you. They're going to pursue you. And yet, you're going to be nourished. You're going to be preserved. Yes, there's going to be war, but we know who wins the war, don't we? We know that the dragon doesn't succeed. He's not going to succeed any more on earth than he succeeded in heaven. And that's the kind of hope that John was trying to give these churches in Revelation. And I think it's interesting that one of the ways that he gives them hope for the future is he's pointing back to that first Christmas. He's pointing back to the mother who's with child, who gives birth, and even when, you know, even when the child, I mean, you know, what child can escape from, a, from a, uh, a cruel and violent edict from a king? And yet God preserves his son, right? So even the hope from the first Christmas, John draws on that to give God's people hope for the future. So it seems like that one of the best ways for us to prepare for what God has for us in the future, even in his second coming, is to be reminded and comforted and encouraged by his first coming, which is what we celebrate this time of year. So I hope that's where you get your encouragement from. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for these promises, and thank you for the hope that they do give to us. Thank you for the encouragement that we can draw from them. Thank you that your commitment to your people in the future is as sure as your faithfulness to them in the past. So that as we have seen you work, not just throughout Scripture, but even throughout our own lives, we can trust that you will continue to keep your promises, uh, to preserve us, and uh, to continue to overcome the enemy for us because of the blood of the Lamb. We, I pray, Lord, that we will be like the ones described here in Revelation, that we 
will not love our lives even unto death. Uh, that, that, that our lives would not be ultimate for us, but that your uh, death and promise of eternal life for us will be ultimate for us. So we pray you'd make that a reality in Jesus' name. Amen.